If you have your Bible with you, I'd invite you to open it to 1 Samuel chapter 25. That's where we'll be for the majority of our time here this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 25. While you're turning there, I'll tell you a little experience that our family had, oh, a few weeks ago. Um, One of my great joys is that my children are both involved in sports. They play on teams and play different sports, and I, as a parent, get to go and watch them. I really enjoy it. It's like uh, free entertainment, although sometimes we have to pay to get into a tournament or two, so it's not totally free, but I really enjoy going to watch my kids enjoy playing sports. And my son, in particular, is on a basketball team this year, and it's been a bit of a rough year, kind of a long year. Uh, zero wins, kind of rough. <laughs> Lots of losses and zero wins to speak of. But we still go, and it's still a lot of fun to see him play and to see him kind of lead in his team and also to do well and grow as a player. But one memory kind of sticks out, and it's not a very good one. It was a few weeks ago. They were playing a, as the visiting team against another middle school basketball team. And the game wasn't going well for our team. Very quickly, we were downed by a lot. And then even after halftime, we were downed by even more large double-digit figures. And now, if you're not familiar, in the game of basketball, particularly when it involves children, it's customary for a team that is winning big to remove their starting players and kind of put in the subs, right? Put in the alternates to take those positions. Because the victory is already in hand, you don't need to run up the score. Well, this team that we were playing didn't do that. They kept their starters in. And the lead just got bigger and bigger and bigger until it was just astronomical. And one, at one point in time during the game, during a timeout, one of the parents on our team decided to do something about that. And he got up, stormed across the court, and started to scream at the referees. And then he started to scream at the coach, the opposing coach. And then before you know it, they were in each other's faces, nose to nose, I mean, breathing threats against one one another. For what the parents saw was an offense that this coach had committed. Why are you still playing your starting players? Can't you see that you're winning? handily we're not going to come back and win this game remove your starting players so that our kids can score a few points that's believe it or not that's something similar to what is going on in first samuel chapter 25 and i'm sure it's something that you've experienced as well although you maybe never have stormed uh, onto the court during a child's basketball game it wasn't me by the way (laughs) i wasn't the parent Uh, it was someone else Um, but i knew where he was coming from because I was likewise frustrated, because I've had the same thoughts. Why are, why are the starters still in? Why are we just racking up the score to make our team feel as lowly and as little as possible? I had those same thoughts, but I didn't stand up and storm across the court and have this reaction that the other parents did, but I kind of wanted to, <laughs> if I'm being honest. And you've probably had something similar like that happen in your life sometime when you've been wronged by somebody, Sometime when somebody has hurt your feelings, or they have even offended you, or maybe even hurt you physically or emotionally, what do you want to do? You want to make things right. You want to get even. You want to go back at them in some way, shape, or form. I've been wronged, and I'm going to do whatever I need to do in order to right the wrong. That's kind of what we see happening here in 1 Samuel 25. If you look at the the verses there, the chapter opens by telling us 
that Samuel, the prophet, has actually died, which was surely a monumental thing for all Israel in general and for David in particular, because Samuel kind of operated as David's spiritual mentor. You'll recall just a few chapters ago when David had nowhere else to go, where did he go? Back to Samuel. Back to find refuge with Samuel. So David has lost a spiritual mentor and a close friend in Samuel. And maybe that's one of the reasons why he does what he does in this chapter, which we'll see in a minute. And this is also the first time in a long time that we read about David in this book without Saul chasing after him. But don't worry, because if you like the cat and mouse game that Saul and David have been playing, it picks up again in the next chapter. But this chapter opens by telling us about a rich man named Nabal. And he was rich because he had a lot of livestock. And for part of the year, he would hire shepherds to care for his sheep and his goats. And then at a certain time of year, they would drive the livestock to a different location to have them sheared. And all the while that Nabal's shepherds were keeping the sheep and goats in the wilderness, getting them ready for the shearing season, David and his men have been keeping them safe. Remember that it was common for the Philistines and even just general thieves and bandits to make raids on towns and villages and to come in and steal everything they had and burn down the town and even kill the people. But David's men here make sure that this doesn't happen to Nabal's shepherds. They offer protection to them. They keep them safe from anyone who might want to kill the shepherds and steal the sheep. If you look at verse 7, This is David speaking to Nabal. He says, I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. And then if you skip down a few verses to verse 15, this is actually what one of the shepherds says about David's men. Verse 15, he says, yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us by night and by day, all the while we were, keeping them, uh, keep, we were with them keeping the sheep. So David has done something very kind and very generous towards Nabal and his shepherds. He kept them safe while they were out among them, protecting them from raiders and from robbers. And as a result of doing something kind for Nabal, David sends greetings to Nabal, and he asks him if he and his men could have some food since they protected the shepherds for so long. So verse 8, David says, Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. Now, that seems like a very reasonable request, wouldn't you say? David and his men have been protecting Nabal's shepherds while they were out in the field, and David asks Nabal to provide some food for the feast day. It's even more reasonable because Nabal is exceedingly wealthy. It says in this chapter that he has 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. That's a lot of animals. And giving David's men a half dozen won't even put a dent in Nabal's wealth of livestock. And especially if you consider that David... Uh, and his men had protected Nabal's sheep, and if they hadn't, they would have maybe all been stolen or killed by raiders. So David has done something good for Nabal, and he reasonably expects Nabal to return his good with more good by providing this food for the feast day. But that's not what happens. Instead, Nabal returns evil for David's good. If you look at verse 9, 
It says, when David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David says, hey, I protected your shepherds, so could we have some food for the feast day? And Nabal basically says, get lost. I don't owe you anything. I have worked hard to have all these sheep and goats, and I don't know you from Adam. Now, you and I would probably agree that Nabal is being rather rude here. But in Hebrew culture, Nabal's response goes beyond rudeness. Instead, it is actually more of a crass insult. Hebrew culture was known for its hospitality customs. You would always give food to people or, to, to, or shelter to people who were in need. You would always have someone over to your house for a meal. Hospitality was just a regular part of Hebrew culture, no matter who you were or what your station in life was. So to refuse hospitality to someone meant that you regarded them as lower than low, that you thought they were worthless. And so that's, not what, Na- that's what Nabal is saying to David here. It's like spitting in David's face. So David has done something kind for Nabal by protecting his shepherds, and Nabal has returns, returned David's good with evil. Now let's see how David returns Nabal's evil. Look at verse 12. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. So, unfortunately, David decides to repay Nabal's evil with some evil of his own. He's going to get revenge. Not just on Nabal, but actually on every male inhabitant of his house. If you look down at verse 34, David reveals that his plan was to actually go to Nabal's property and kill every male he found there. Now, that's not good. (laughs) And I don't think that that's the kind of response that God wanted from David, from the man after his own heart, from the man whom he had anointed to be the king of his people. In fact, that actually kind of sounds like something that King Saul would do, don't you think? If you've been with us and you've kind of gotten a picture of King Saul's character, that sounds like Saul. David's desire to go and kill who knows how many people because Nabal insulted him, I think we can safely say, is a sinful desire. But can I suggest to you that actually one of the great things about the way the Bible describes the people that God uses is that it doesn't sugarcoat it. When God's people, even people after God's own heart, mess up and sin, the Bible doesn't whitewash it. It doesn't excuse it. It exposes it. Even David, a man after God's own heart, still struggles with sin. And I believe the reason the Bible shows us the failures of these Old Testament saints is to magnify the grace and forgiveness of God. I mean, let's face it. David makes some huge, huge blunders in his life. And so does virtually every other person that God uses in the storyline of Scripture. But that doesn't mean that they're unredeemable. In fact, just the opposite. 
God's grace is so amazing that it can cover even these sins that these Old Testament saints commit. God can even forgive the outrageous sins of his people, like the murderous rage and vengeance that David has burning in his heart right here in chapter 25, and like the lust that overtakes him a couple of times in his life. David, the man after God's own heart, needs a savior because he is sinful, because he struggles with rage and anger, because he struggles with lust. We're going to actually see that later on, even in this chapter, and even further out in David's story. At the end of this chapter, David's first wife, you remember we've talked about her, Saul's daughter, Michael, leaves him for someone else. And so David gets remarried. And then he gets remarried again to another woman. So he's got two wives by the end of 1 Samuel 25 one of whom is this Abigail that you'll see in just a moment. And so we look at that and we think, uh, David, man after God's own heart, how many wives do you need? <laughs> Didn't God tell you to just have one? Yes, he did. But David took two. And actually get this, by the time David gets to the end of his life, you know how many wives he ends up with? Eight. David, the man after God's own heart, ends up with eight wives. Now, the Bible clearly forbids polygamy. So how should we harmonize that with David being after a man after God's own heart? Well, I'm actually going to uh, try to harmonize that. I'm going to write a blog post about that exact question this week. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it now, except to hopefully show you and hopefully you see that these people that God uses aren't perfect. They are messed up people. They are still struggling with sin. Even though they've been redeemed by God, they are still battling their sinful tendencies, and sometimes it gets the better of them. Now again, we don't, we don't say that, and I don't think the Bible includes that for us to condemn them, but just the opposite, to magnify the grace of God. Because David is messed up. David needs grace. And that's what we see when we see him fall time after time. We've seen it a few times in his story already. We're going to see it again next week, I think. He's going to stumble again. Well, what does that mean? He's a, an unforgivable lout? No! It means that God's grace is great. It is amazing that can cover people who struggle with sin as a regular part of life, but who are battling it, and sometimes it gets the better of them. God can and will and does forgive. So for right now, we think we just need to understand that David is far from perfect. David is a human being with a sinful nature, and even after he has been chosen and redeemed by God, he still struggles with that sinful nature. We see it here in chapter 25. Again, we're going to look at it next week in, verse, or in chapter 27. And again, the Bible shows us all of that because I think God wants us to see that his grace is bigger than the sin of his people. It's more amazing than even the most spectacular sin. And that's true for David, and it's true for you. Maybe you can identify with some of the spectacular sins of the people of God that he has chosen to draw to himself. And God wants you to know that his grace is more powerful than your sin. And even when you have been redeemed and you are a man or a woman after God's own heart, guess what? You're still going to struggle with sin, just like David does. The Christian life is not a one-and-done kind of life. We don't just be a Christian on the day that we trust Christ. Instead, it's a daily battle of following Him and struggling with sin, a daily battle of choosing holiness and righteousness instead of our sin. 
So one reason why God shows us the sins of his people is to show us that his grace can overcome those sins, and it can overcome yours. And he invites you to taste that amazing grace. But back to the story that's going on here. David and Nabal are locked in this battle with one another, repaying each other evil for evil. Now what do two hard-headed alpha male type men need? They need a wise and godly woman to come in and show them the way. And that's what Nabal's wife, Abigail, does. She shows David the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is to repay good for evil. When Abigail learns that David is coming with 400 men to take Nabal out, she puts together all the food that David actually initially requested and sends it along to him. Now, her husband wasn't decent enough to show him hospitality that was not only culturally normative, but was also appreciative for the kindness that David had shown to his shepherds. Even though David was coming to kill everyone, which was evil, Abigail decided to respond to David's evil by showing the kindness of sending the men the food that they needed. And then Abigail herself rides out to meet with David. And she basically tells him, you're right, my husband is a fool. In fact, the name Nabal, it actually means foolish. But she says, don't do this. This David is wrong. If you do do this, you'll regret it because it's wrong. And someday when you're the king, you'll have this blood hanging over your head. And so instead, trust God to take care of you and to deal with your enemies. And you're right that my husband wronged you. And if he needs to be dealt with, let God deal with it. You see, Abigail responds to David's evil with good. And in what Abigail does and says, she sounds a lot like Jesus. What did Jesus say about dealing with people who treat us badly? We read this earlier in the service from Matthew 5. He said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, is it right for someone to slap you across the face? No, it's not. But it's also not right for you to haul off and smack the person back. And in the first century, Jesus references a Roman, or a custom, a Roman custom of a centurion who was legally permitted to tell any private citizen, drop everything you have and carry my gear for up to one mile. All Roman citizens and anybody under the occupation of Rome was obligated by law to carry a centurion's gear at a moment's notice for up to one mile. And what does Jesus say? Is that fair? No, it's not. It's not fair. For them to treat you that way but if someone asks you to go one mile go two go above and beyond when someone tells you to do something unfair man that's radical isn't that different and he says don't hate your enemies love them pray for them 
And then do you remember what Paul says about overcoming evil with good? We read this also from Romans chapter 12. He says, repay no one for evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head, which is a figure of speech. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The clear call of Jesus upon the people of God, including David and including those of us here who follow Jesus, is to overcome evil with good. Now, why does the Bible tell us to do that? Why does it tell us not to take revenge and every man strap on his sword, we're going to get him? Why is that the wrong response? Let me give you three reasons why. First, because our desire for justice is stained with sin, okay? Our good and right desire for justice is stained with a desire for sinful vengeance, just look at David's situation. He did something kind for Nabal. Nabal basically, you know, spit in his face. And David was right to desire retribution because it was wrong for Nabal that way. David is right to want the scales to be balanced. That is a good and godly desire. But how does David propose balancing out the scales? Kill everyone in sight, right? That's his that's his solution to the problem of being wronged by, by Nabal. And I hope you can see that David's desire for justice is stained with sinful vengeance. And so the Bible counsels us, don't try to seek vengeance for yourself. You're just not good at it. You're still struggling with sin, and that struggle is bound to influence the way that you seek justice. And rather than actually balancing the scales, you are much more likely to fall into sin. And then you'll have to live with the regret of taking matters into your own hands and doing or saying something that you can't take back. And if you doubt me, again, think back to the last time that you were wronged or that somebody hurt you in some way. Wasn't your first reaction to become really angry and want to get back at them? You see, you aren't good at carrying out divine justice. Your anger and desire for vengeance gets in the way. So rather than repaying evil for evil, Paul says, Jesus says, overcome evil with good. Did your spouse hurt you in some way? Don't get them back. Instead, seek to serve them and love them. Parents, did your kids hurt you in some way? You know, maybe not physically or anything, but sometimes as a parent it can get overwhelming to think, why won't they listen? Why won't they do what they've been told? And it can hurt us, right? We can actually become hurt by that because it's just over and over and over again. And, you know, not that parents ever want to take revenge on their kids, but parents, I would challenge you to think about this. In your discipline, is your discipline of your children ever fueled by revenge? <laughs> again, not that you're going to do, like, strap on your sword or anything, but parents, do you ever discipline out of a maybe a sinful desire for vengeance think about that 
And I'm not saying that we shouldn't discipline our kids, but we shouldn't seek payback. Instead, we should love our children and pray for them and seek out their good. So if and when you are wronged by someone, don't seek your own justice because it's stained with a sinful desire for vengeance. So rather, the call upon followers of Jesus is to overcome evil with good. And second, we're called to overcome evil with good because God promises to deal with evil perfectly. God is going to deal with evil perfectly. You see, all the ways in which you and I are not qualified to deal with evil, God is qualified. Our desires for retribution is, is stained with sin. And God promises to be just. And his promise to be just is not stained with sin. It is purely holy and righteous. This is what Paul says in Romans 12, when he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Your vengeance is stained with sin. God's vengeance is perfectly righteous and holy. The reason we take revenge, I think sometimes, is that we want to play the role of God. We want to dole out punishment where we think it is most deserved, particularly to that person who just offended me or did something to me except we don't have the perspective that God does, so we will almost certainly bungle it and sin in the process and strap on our swords. You're not qualified to take revenge. God is. And so if God is running the justice and revenge departments, then that totally takes vengeance off of our to-do lists. We then are free to trust him to deal with those who attack us and who offend us or who treat us unjustly. So rather than get revenge, you and I are freed up to actually be loving towards our enemies. Again, listen to what Paul says. He says, if God is going to take revenge, then if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Now, why would I feed and, and give, and give uh, water to my enemy? Don't I want to get him? I don't want to get him. Because if he needs to get got, God will do it. And so in the meantime, I am going to feed him. I am going to give him something to drink. So do you see how freeing that is for the people of God? We don't have to be concerned with trying to balance the scales. We can be free to love our enemies. And then third, we are called to overcome evil with good because in doing so, we will become like Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus was arrested in the garden? A couple of his disciples wanted to fight to defend him. They didn't have to strap on their swords. They already had them strapped on. But Jesus rebuked them. And he said this to them in Matthew 26, verse 53. He said, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? You see, Jesus could have called down thousands and thousands of angels to utterly slaughter all of his enemies. But he didn't. Instead, he trusted that God would vindicate him, even though it led to his death. Rather than return evil for evil, Jesus repays the greatest evil that was done to him with the greatest good, that of giving up his life to be a payment for sins. And let, re let me remind you that that includes the evil that you did to him. All of us have done a great evil against God through our sin. And the evil that you have done deserves 
a great punishment in return. And God would be well within his rights to give you that punishment because remember, his justice is perfectly righteous. But God has chosen to repay your evil with good by sending his son to die on the cross and take the punishment that you deserve, that your evil deserves, so that you could have eternal life. And to receive this greatest good repayment for all your evil, all you must do is trust that Jesus died to take the punishment for your evil in order to deliver you, or to you, the greatest good of eternal life. And if you'd like to know more about that, I'd love to talk to you about what it means to take that greatest good that Jesus wants to give you. But another reason the Bible tells us to overcome evil with good is that that is the way of Jesus. That's what Jesus does. We see him live it out and even die it out. And those who follow Jesus want to be like him. So when we are offended, rather than every man strap on his sword, we look for ways to help and serve those who hurt us. And if we are doing that, the world will take notice. Because our human nature is to take revenge. It's to, to get up in the middle of the basketball game and go chew out the other coach. But if instead we are seeking to serve and love and pray for our enemies... The world takes note because that is strange. But that is the way of Jesus. And so his followers seek to overcome evil with good because we want to follow his example. We want to be like him. And all of this is what Abigail shows to David. If you think back again to 1 Samuel 25, she goes and she tells David that his plan for justice, quote-unquote, is dripping with sin. And if he goes through with it, he's going to regret it. And she tells him that he should leave this up to God and trust God to do what is right. And in so doing, she is showing David the way of Jesus because that's what Jesus does. And that's what his followers do. And so actually, David takes her advice. He relents. He doesn't go through with his plan to kill all the men in Nabal's family. And guess what? God takes care of it. If you're still in 1 Samuel 25, look at verse 37. It says, In the morning... When the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, that she saved his life and gave David the food he asked for. And his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. This is the same pattern for followers of Jesus today. Trust God when we are wronged and hurt. Don't seek your own vengeance because your idea of justice is stained with sin. And seek your enemy's welfare, and in so doing, you will become more like Jesus. So let me ask you this. When I asked you or I encouraged you to think of somebody who has maybe wronged you in the past and I encouraged you to pray for them today, who did you think of? Get that person in your mind again. And then I'm going to challenge you to do this. What is one thing you can do this week to bless that person? To bless that person who wronged you. And you might be thinking, but that's not fair. You don't know what he did. Right? It's not the point. It's not the point. Again, how often could Jesus have said that as he was suffering in the week of his passion, right? This isn't fair. I didn't do anything to deserve this. But he was committed to trusting God 
for justice, and he was committing to, committed to then, in the meantime, loving his enemies, providing for them, blessing them through his death. And now the call's on you. Get that person in your mind that you prayed for earlier, somebody who has wronged you, someone who you might you know, call your enemy, quote-unquote. I want to encourage you to do one thing this week, just one thing that will bless that person. That's what Jesus wants you to do, and that's how you can follow Christ this week. And that's the call on David here in 1 Samuel chapter 25, a call that he heeded. May we likewise heed that same call. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you again that you have provided us the greatest example of what it means to follow after Jesus. Because, Lord Jesus, you came to do the greatest good for those who did you the greatest evil. Lord, may we seek peace with those with whom we have a disagreement. As much as it concerns us, may we live peaceably with all. Father, would you give us the heart and compassion and the resources to feed our enemies, to give them something to drink. Lord, may you enlarge our hearts with a firm and solid trust that vengeance belongs to you and not to us. Lord, that you will see justice done in your own time and in your own way. And as we consider that truth, Lord, would you give us the grace to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to help those who have wronged us, to bless those who did nothing to deserve a blessing, because, Lord, we know that we did nothing to deserve a blessing, and yet you blessed us with the greatest good, eternal life and fellowship with the living God. Lord, help us this week to follow your example. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.